So 2 Samuel 23, verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is. And who has seen him there? For it has told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they rose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the rock of escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Let's turn together now to Psalm 61 and we'll read this psalm together. Psalm 61 to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. 
May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. We end our reading of God's word there. Please keep it open as we come to look at it this morning. Psalm 61 is perhaps one of our best loved children's versions of the Psalms. Hear my cry, O God, and listen to my prayer from the ends of the earth that I cry unto you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That is higher than I. Certainly a favourite in our house, and we sing it often in family worship. And the beauty of these songs that we learn as children is that sometimes they are the first to come back to us in, the t- in times of crisis and distress. Whenever we're out walking and our minds in a, in a total fuzz and we're all over the place, or when we're lying awake in the uh, midnight hours with tears in our eyes, these are the words that often come to us first, and we love them. They're precious to us. I'm sure many of us have felt like David as he writes these words. As I said earlier, I'm not sure when in his life he wrote them, but there's a beauty in that, in that they fit a range of circumstances and situations. Many of us have felt like David feels when he writes this psalm. Have you felt like David when he writes this song? Maybe there have been times in your life, maybe there are times now. Times like when you're lying in bed and and the the alarm goes off and you wake off and immediately your stomach tightens because of the day ahead. Or you're in the the shower in the morning or you're you're washing and the prospect of... uh, of getting out of the shower or coming out of the bathroom and all that lies ahead of you is just overwhelming. Driving to to work or sitting on on the bus and and your thoughts are just bouncing all over the place. Times that you've just gone for a drive to, to nowhere, not even aware of where you're going. Dreading sitting down at the lunch table in work or school or in home because you've got no company. Or you, you, maybe it's the company that's the problem. Times in life when we find ourselves at, at a loose end because everything's changing, the children have gone, the house seems big and, and empty, or times of pain and weakness when it's just too much again, or the tasks in the, the months ahead, weeks ahead, they just, they never get any less, you never make any progress it's just all too much I'm sure there are times when we have all felt like David as he writes Psalm 61 have you ever felt like this have you ever felt like this he begins with calling verse 1 hear my cry O God listen to my prayer he begins with calling out to God The Psalms are full of this type of prayer. A prayer for our prayers to be heard. God, listen to me. God, hear me. God, answer me. God, pay attention to me. The Psalms are full of prayers for our prayers to be heard. And at the very least, they are 
expressions of our longing and, and our depth of feeling. But sometimes I've read these words and I've been a little bit uh, puzzled by them. It seems odd. Why pray for your prayers to be heard? Why not just pray and, and lay these things before God? Hear my cry. Listen to my prayer. I read a comment uh, this week that was helpful, a comment from Spurgeon, a uh, famous preacher in London in the 1800s. He writes this, David is not content with the outward forms of prayer. The Pharisee may rest in their prayers. True believers are eager for an answer. David's not content with just saying the words. David's not content with going through a ritual of saying a set prayer and then ticking that off while I've prayed to God. He's calling out. He's communicating. That is what prayer is. This is the earnestness of David's heart. He's sincere as he prays. He's calling out to God pleading that he would have a hearing with the king of heaven. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Have you been here? We all sometimes fall into our prayers just being words. There are habits that we default to. We use the same words and sometimes that's helpful because our mind struggles to concentrate. Or we have prayer lists so that we pray systematically for people. But we find ourselves just working through them, just mentioning the names and praying the same things. And, and I'm sure you find too that so often you're praying and, and you, your mind is, is a million miles away. And sometimes prayers like that, it's just words. And then other times prayers like this. It's earnest. It's heartfelt. The heart is invested in it. It's like we are shouting for help to someone very far away. Like we're stuck on a desert island and the, the boat is passing. And we are hollering with all of our might for help. Have you been here? Calling for God. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you, have you been here? Next, David is feeling far off and fainting. Have you been here? From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. David perhaps has had to run for his life. He's away from home. He's perhaps had to leave the promised land and, and be amongst uh, the enemies of God's people, away from the place of God's promise and God's blessing. He's, he's maybe among foreign people who don't s love and serve his God. Uh, it's maybe one of the times he's in the wilderness, he's in the desert. It might just be metaphorical. From the end of the earth, I call to you. Whatever it is, wherever he is, he is a long way from God. And from his people and from his presence. He's far off. And he's fainting. From the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. His, his strength is gone, his zest, his zeal, it's gone. He can't face the challenges anymore. I don't mean to, to, to make 
light of it, but you, I think you get a little sense of, of this sort of soul feeling he, he has when at the, at the end of a day's work, and it's, it's uh, an hour, uh, half an hour to, to tea, and you can almost just feel your blood sugars drop, and you're unable to concentrate, and everything's an, an effort, and maybe you're doing manual work, and you just you can barely summon the energy to, to lift that load. You're faint. Or maybe you're sick. You're lying on, on the sofa and it's just a cup of tea, but boy, does it seem heavy to lift that. And to summon up the, the effort to, to bring that cup up to your lips and hold it steady. There's times when the strength just goes from us and we are utterly overwhelmed and, and incapacitated. That's how David's feeling. Far off and faint. Do you find yourself feeling far off and faint? Doesn't matter where you are. In one sense, anywhere on this planet feels far off from God. Anywhere can feel far off from God. Do you find yourself unable to face the tasks ahead of you? My Bible readings this week included Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity... How small is your strength? And sometimes you read that and you just nod and say, yeah, my strength is small. I can't face the day of adversity anymore. Far off and faint. Calling, far off and fainting. Third, he's looking. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. As he prays in his time of fainting, David is looking, looking for a safe place. He's looking for a safe place. And he uses five pictures in verse 2 to 4. Second half of verse 2. He's looking for a safe place now. Lead me now, Lord, to the rock that is higher than I. He's looking for a safe place now in this time of being far off and fainting. I remember a holiday in Bantry Bay down uh, the very bottom of of Ireland, 1992, uh, opposite our tent was a huge rock. Well, it seemed huge now. I, I, would, I tried to find some pictures of it to see how big it would look in real life now, but as, as a five-year-old, this seemed like a whole mountain, and I remember spending hours playing on this rock. There's just something about a, a boulder like that. It was fun to be on because it was, it was safe. You felt like you were on top of the world. You could play castles and, and armies and we just were instinctively drawn to it because a rock is safe and strong. A rock can't be undermined. It gives you the height advantage. That's what David is looking for. David is looking for a rock that is higher than he is. A place bigger than him. Stronger than him. Something outside of him, more than him, that, a rock that is higher than, than I am. Something that, that its vastness gives a sense of safety. 
And he's saying, take me to this place of safety now. Lead me there now, Lord. He's looking for safety, a safe place now. In verse 2, he's looking back to the safe places of the past. You have been a refuge. You have been the place that I have run to for protection and safety when I'm under attack. You have been a strong tower against the, the enemy. Think of the keep of a castle. Rocks built on top of one another. Wide, tall, the, the, the heavily fortified door, the, the small uh, slit window so that arrows can be shot out. It's the place that you run to for safety when your city is attacked. You think of a strong tower. They're not so much designed to be impregnable. They're designed to put you off even trying. They're designed to intimidate with a sense of safety and security. And this is who God, uh, David has found God to be in the past. And this is what he's longing for now. Think of the last seven Psalms that we've looked at. David describing seven specific enemies. They're deadly, they're malicious, and yet David is still on the throne. Because God has been his safe place. You have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. He's looking for a safe place now. He's looking back to the safe places of the past. He's looking in the fourth and fifth images for a safe place close to God. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. It's the image of God's tent, his tabernacle, his dwelling place. The beautiful worship sanctuary that every time you saw it, you were told, you knew that God was with you. That God was with his people in their midst, in the middle. The fifth image, let me take shelter, refuge under the shelter of your wings. As we've said before, it's not so much the image of the mother hen, though that is part of it, but it's more than that. It's richer than that. It's more so the image of the beautiful golden box at the heart of God's tent. The Ark of the Covenant, wood covered with gold with a lid, and on the lid, cherubim, two angels with their wings outspread. And that was in the most holy place. That was the symbol of the presence of God. That was, that was described as God's footstool. That was like the, the bit where, where God's feet on earth were joined to him in, in heaven, to him on the throne. And under those outstretched wings, once a year the priest went in with the blood of a sacrifice and spread it there to make peace for the people so they could have their sins forgiven. Under the wings wasn't just a place like the mother hen that, that was safe and, and close. Under the wings in God's tent was the place where you were made right with God. You had peace with God. Blood made peace. And so God was with his people because of the blood. David's looking for safety close to God. 
He's looking for safety where sinners can be close to God. Where sinners can draw near. Have you been here? Looking, longing for that safe place. That safe rock, secure, steadfast, stable, certain. The, the, the refuge, the strong tower that you knew and you've experienced in the past. Closeness to God, despite even your sin. Have you been looking and longing for safety with God? Here's a song that fits. Here's a song that resonates. It comes to us in the long night hours. Comes to us in the fog where our feelings are just floundering. Comes to us and it expresses the the cry of our heart. We felt like David, haven't we? But it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's not your song and it's not my song. You're not David. I'm not David. And your experiences are not David either. You see, David is not just a person like us. He is a person like us, but he's not just a person like us. He's more than that. David is God's king. God's chosen king to bring blessing and peace and prosperity to God's people. David has a role. David has a job. David has an office, a task that you and I don't have. David is God's king, God's Messiah. In another language, he is God's Christ. So David is not first and foremost you and me. We get a sense of that in this psalm. There's an abrupt change, verses 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Why is he suddenly talking about the king? Seems odd to us, doesn't it? It'll be interesting to see how many times... We've sung just the first uh, four verses of this psalm. First five verses. As David writes Psalm 61, he is writing as God's king. He's not an average Jew. He's not an everyday person. And what that means then is that David's feelings, David's faith-fueled prayers, David's fears, David's foes are not simply ours. David has a role David has an office. David has a function, a place in God's plan that we don't have. There is, of course, some overlap between us and our experiences and David's. But there's more to David's experience than ours. Let me put it like this. Imagine you are reading uh, Leo Varadkar or David Cameron's memoirs of their time in office as Taoiseach and Prime Minister. And you read of the pressured decisions and the the, the tensions within the party that they had to try and manage. And you read and you go, yeah, I I know what that's like. That's like my work. High pressure decisions. Managing tensions. Well, we do a bit. But 
we'd all acknowledge as we read that there's, there's a little bit more to it whenever you're the Prime Minister or, or the Taoiseach. Um, my pressures are not actually their pressures. Uh, my responsibilities and concerns are not actually the same as theirs. You know, I might have had a stressful week this week, but I have not had to try and weigh up whether we put an entire nation into a second lockdown or not. That's not belittling or minimising my pressures, but they have a role, a function, responsibilities and concerns that I don't have, that are greater than mine. <clears throat> now, what am I saying? Am I trying to put us all off Psalm 61 that's so precious and dear to us and comes to us in the midnight hours? Am I saying, look, this is not for mere commoners like you and me? Of course not. But I want us to see it from another and a richer angle. David's calling out. David is far off and fainting. David is longing because he is the king. And what we see in the Bible again and again is that how things go with the king are how they go with God's people. What I mean is if the king walks with God and is blessed, well then the people will walk with God and will be blessed. If the king turns away from God, the people will turn away from God. The welfare and the blessing of God's people is tied up with the welfare and the blessing of the king. Like a family. You know, in one sense, how it goes with the head of the home is how it goes with the family. If, if the head of the home, if the father, the main breadwinner, loses his job, well, the whole family suffers. If he gets promoted, well, everybody gets an extra son holiday. Welfare and blessing are bound up in the head, the king. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. It's a prayer for the welfare and the blessing of the king. It is then a prayer for the welfare and blessing of the people. That's all well and good, but why should we care about the welfare and the prosperity of David's kingdom? This song isn't first and foremost about us. It's not first and foremost about David either, is it? David's hopes for his kingdom would be dashed. David's reign did not endure to all generations. David was not enthroned forever before God like he hoped and prayed in verses 6 and 7. But one of David's line, one of his descendants, would fulfill this. And when the Lord Jesus, David's descendant, died, rose again, ascended. What's that imagery? The image of a victor going up. That's the imagery of, of ascending to the throne, of the king going up to rule on the throne. When Jesus ascends on the ascension day, he's ascending to the throne as king over all. What did he say before he went up? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's the king going up to rule and reign forever. He's the fulfillment. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him.
He's the king who is longing, far off and fainting, calling. I said this was a richer angle to, to view the psalm from. Two reasons it's, it's richer. First of all, we have a king who has experienced this. And second, we have a king who is eternal. We have a king who has experienced this. King Jesus is high and exalted in heaven, but he's not far off and remote. All those things that we have experienced, the heartfelt calling, the, the, the being far off and fainting, the looking for help, he has experienced all of it. The eternal king has experienced these struggles. This is his prayer in the days of his life here on earth. This song is his prayer. Verses 1 and 2. Hear my cry. Oh God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you. No one was ever further from God in a sense. And no one was ever more aware of, of distance from God. Think of, think of it like this. Like he was in the, in the heights of glory, equal with God, and he came down and took the form of a servant. You, you could not get two polar, uh, more polar opposites. No one had ever felt the pain of separation from God because of sin like he had. He knew what it really meant. Verse, the second half of verse 2 as well. When my heart is faint. No one's heart has ever been fainter than, than his. Nobody else has endured the infinite, eternal wrath of God. Compressed into a few short hours. You have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. No one had ever felt more secure in God, unwavering trust. And now on the cross, his enemies have free reign. No one had ever longed for God's presence more than he had. Let me dwell in your tent. Think even as a child, where was he found when he went missing? Don't you know? I must be in my father's house. No one has experienced the sentiments of Psalm 61 more fully, more completely than Jesus has. And so here's the beauty, friends. Whatever resonance this psalm has for you, he knows. He knows that. Because he has experienced it. You know, think of it like this. Is there, is there any pain for a, for a parent or an aunt or an uncle like seeing your, your child going through what you went through? Because you don't just see their pain, but you remember that. You remember what that was like. Whether it's 
bullying or, or sickness or, or whatever. And doesn't your heart then go out with all the more love because of it? And here's our Savior. He has experienced all of this. We cannot comprehend how strongly his heart of love goes out to us when we feel like we're in the middle of Psalm 61. Because he's been there. But he's not simply there beside us with an arm around us being nice but powerless to do anything. He's eternal. He's the eternal king. He reigns over all forever. All authority in heaven and earth is his. And so he has power to do something about it. Not just compassion because he's been there, but power to do something about it. Because he is the eternal king. What a, what a delight it is to have an eternal king. Do you ever think on that? An eternal king. Imagine any of our leaders, prime ministers, Taoiseachs, presidents were eternal. But one who's full of steadfast love and faithfulness, ruling forever. What a joy that would be. He's the eternal king. His life is eternal. His life's not going to come to an end. He's not going to be assassinated by a rival and and lose his throne. His reign is forever and and he gives that eternal life to us to share as well. And we join in. His reign is eternal. He's always on the throne. He's always overruling. He's always uh, in charge. What security and, and safety that gives us. There's not one moment where he is not king. His reign is forever. His character is forever. This heart full of love that comes bursting out, it's, it's not a fleeting temporary thing. It, it doesn't, some days he's feeling like that towards us and other days he's, he's, he's too busy worrying about you know, big problems in the world. His character is eternal. All he does, and look at the two words that, that David uses. Steadfast love, unchanging love, faithful love, never-ending love, and, and faithfulness. Who he is does not waver or fluctuate. How he feels towards us does not waver or fluctuate. His word to us, his promises to us, does not waver or fluctuate, change or fail. You will never find a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a business partner, a friend like this. Unwavering. His praises are eternal. You can't say enough about him. You'll spend all eternity, verse 8, ever singing praises. After a million, billion, trillion, zillion years, we'll still be praising him and we'll won't be on repeat he will not have tarnished nor dulled nor faded he is an eternal king and so I urge you to pay your vows to him verse 5 for you O God have heard my vows verse 8 so will I 
ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Pay your vows to this great king. What vows have you made? Well, if you are a Christian, you have made a public commitment to him. You have vowed allegiance to him. You have professed faith in him. Trust, obedience, consistency. Commitment. The essence of your membership. Vows. Your public profession of faith, of allegiance to him. That's the vow that you're to pay. If you remember here, you've made baptismal vows. Vows to raise children in the ways of the Lord. Vows to pray for them and set an example to them. If you're an office bearer, if your vows of ordination, vows to hold fast personally and publicly to God's word, to the testimony and teaching of our church, a vow to serve others for their sake and for the glory of Christ and not for your own honour. A vow to take care of your own soul and your own household. These are the vows that we've made. These are the vows that we are to keep. Day by day. Friends, day by day, pay your vows to the king. You see, having an eternal king leads us to be committed to him, to do what we'll say, to do it, to pay our vows. And that's the key point as, as we close today. An eternal king of steadfast love and faithfulness to us draws out our eternal service. He draws out our steadfast love to him, our faithfulness to him. Verse 8. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. We will spend all eternity in wholehearted praise of him and wholehearted service. That's eternity. Wholehearted service. We can experience eternity now. Day by day, serving and praising him. And, and think back to times in your life when you've experienced this. When serving hasn't been a drudgery, but it's been a delight. A mission trip, a mission team, a, a, a go team. Some particular uh, ministry that you were particularly caught up in and, and it was a joy. And that's service at its best. That's service closest to heavenly service. And we're called to do that now and for eternity. Perform your vows to him to serve, to praise. Perform your vows to him because, friends, even this last verse isn't about you either. This is Jesus, actually, in verse 8, saying to you, I will perform my vows to you. All that I have promised to you in my word, I will do to you. Day by day, time and again. All the promises, all the blessings, all I have said I will do and be to you, I will do. To hear you from the ends of the earth when you're fainting. To be your rock and your strong tower. To be your refuge. To be your 
security. To take you to dwell with me forever, close to me, under my protection. Jesus is saying in Psalm 61 thus, I will perform my vows, my word, my promises to you. So you perform yours to me. Amen.